Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground, alternative activist empowerment talk radio, speaking truth to our and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know? Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man means you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? I am a revolutionary. It's not about what Hannah and Combs did. It's about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person, regardless of who's in the White House. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent fairly, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God Damn America. That's in the Bible for killing innocent people. God Damn America for treating us citizens as less than human. God. And the so-called Negro has to feel free to speak his mind without hurting the feelings of the white man. Then they can bring the issues that are under the rug out on top of the table and take an intelligent approach to get the problem solved. That's the only way that they'll ever do it. America's chickens are coming home to roost. Violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. And terrorism begets terrorism. Our common ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for being with us. And thank you for being with us once again here at Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham, your host. And tonight at Our Common Ground, we are so honored and pleased to have our brother, as a guest, Isaiah Washington. He has come to the attention of the world because of his skills and talent as an actor. But his work as a humanitarian and a good citizen are seen front and center in his book, A Man from Another Land. This book caught me by surprise in a few ways, mainly because of all the things he could be doing with his time and life Something within this brother made him want to look into where his lineage began, which took him to Sierra Leone and the Mende people. His journey didn't stop there. He also wanted to see what he could do to help a people that are sometimes forgotten in the worldwide dialogue 
about disparities and where the most work can be done. He has crafted a powerful, moving story of his identity struggles from the early years of his life as a heavily melanated man living in a society hostile to his hue, to his rise in the entertainment industry, to the discovery of the Anglo Sierra Leone ancestry through DNA testing, as well as the scandal that damaged his career just for a second, his resulting financial hardships and the ups and downs of his charitable work in Sierra Leone. His is a story that is at once both stirring and comforting as he recounts experiences in his life that are part of a shared black American culture as well as a unique journey due to his role as a respected goodwill ambassador and chief in Sierra Leone. A very insightful story, and we are so very pleased to have him with us, and he'll be joining us right after this. I am so excited to have you with me to join in celebrating a good brother. You know, we like to talk about men who stand, and Isaiah is Washington is one of those men. Tonight at Our Common Ground, we welcome our brother, Isaiah Washington. With him, we'll talk about embracing and claiming our roots. Isaiah Washington, actor, activist, author of A Man from Another Land. Stay tuned. Brother Washington, with your mitochondrial DNA, it's quite common among the Mende and Temne people in Sierra Leone. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> the CEO of the company, AfricanAncestry.com, uh, she allayed my fears by telling me that it's a very simple process. <clears throat> it's very anonymous. You become a number. And after that, I was like, okay, let me, let me give this a shot. And uh, it changed my life. The mask, the mask, uh, for years and throughout my young adulthood here in New York, particularly in uh, the Mecca in Brooklyn, uh, everywhere I went, uh, even before that when I was traveling in Toronto or Sweden or Germany, uh, people who are actually indigenous of the continent would always say, where are you from? And I would say, uh, Houston. And they'd say, no, where are you from? Uh, Brooklyn? <laughs> you know, <they're>, oh, <laughs> That's where, it, right? No, where are you from? And yeah. it, it, I think that the daunting feeling was, it was seeing something that I wasn't aware of. Uh, and, I, and the thing that really stayed with me all those years is I didn't have an answer. I didn't have another language I could speak. I could barely master English. Uh, so I, there was always this haunting feeling inside for years that said, there's something a little bit more about these people seeing me as something that I don't understand. And lo and behold, uh, I have, had been having this dream since I was about nine, kind of showing me that I was somewhere that looked like it was very green, very lush area, and I thought it was Jamaica, so my wife and I, we spent a lot of time back to back, five years in a row going to Jamaica, thinking that this was the nirvana that I had been feeling, but on the moment I actually became a chief, it just blew my mind. Imagine having a deja vu 
for four hours. It, it was mind-boggling. So I'm the first. There are others now. I hear uh, several, a couple hundred uh, maybe have received their citizenship in Cameroon. They're drinking dirty water oh. right now, and the kids are suffering and dying uh, because of it. These children and children from the um, neighboring villages were all coming to try to receive penicillin that I ended up running out of. So I'm doing the best I can. I'm trying to move as fast as I can. You know? Isaiah's Quest. Joining celebs like Oprah and Chris Tucker, Isaiah participated in a program which uses DNA to trace one's familial roots. After finding out his ancestors came from Sierra Leone, Washington began a mission to help the country. I'm just getting out of the vehicle. I have in my left hand my staff, which they call the Tipoy, which says that I am a chief. He made you a chief? And what are you saying to these guys? I'm saying I'm very proud of you. I'm, I'm about to try that. I say it. Yeah, I go. Yeah, the good boy dancer, which is ancient. He is the guy that cleanses your past and your future. This is the last piece of African soil that uh, tens of thousands of people stepped on before being put in the slave ship. For many Africans, Bunch Island served as the final stop before a new life of slavery. A lot of the people that were there went straight to America exclusively. That's what Bunch Island was designed. Isaiah longs to have the island preserved as an homage to those who suffered there. But yeah, African Americans from America will come and visit, almost like a pilgrimage. Absolutely. Exactly. And now, you, not only do you have the history, it's been acknowledged, and I really believe that the ancestors will be at peace. Transitions in your family, uh, with your mother. 
Thank um, you. We were supposed to do this a little earlier, but you know, as it as it all works out, everything happens in due time, and obviously this is the time. Um, I, I can only uh, uh, address the question of being special and give that honor to my mother, uh, because if it were not for her, particularly her DNA and my father's DNA, I wouldn't be on this phone with you today. So I think that the the most divine thing, the most special thing, is the fact that we have a science um, that can validate uh, us through our chromosomes, which I think is probably the most profound opportunity uh, in our particular community and the African diaspora uh, for us to date in the 21st century. In my belief, I believe that the chromosome is literally that ladder, um, uh-huh. that bridge back to our peoples and the individual nations that uh, were forced to be uh, participants in the transatlantic slave trade. And I'm just merely a a mustard seed that is trying to continue to stump that conversation and keep it alive and well. So hopefully, you know, when we read about this, well, we won't read about it, maybe 50, 100 years from now, the impact would actually be felt at a, at a large level. Mm-hmm. When when I finished reading your book, um, I, I continued to think about the book on almost on a daily basis because one of the things that I have held um, very close is that many of the things that happen to us as African Americans in this country and the way in which we seem to continue to be in the struggle is that we have some inner source that is telling us that we are not connected. And your story was so thought-provoking in that way. Can you Can you tell us uh, tell our audience exactly what led you to this DNA testing. An African woman uh, by the name of Moza Cooper, um, who I gave her own chapter, uh, as we know historically, it has always been the African woman that has been the the, the promulgator or the, the beginning of, of all of humanity. It's always the woman, uh, particularly the woman of African descent. Uh, so I, I can only give credit to a woman uh, named Moza Cooper who happens to be Tanzanian who actually forced me to take the DNA test. I, with my limited knowledge of forensics and obviously my very vast knowledge of, of reasons to be suspicious of any uh, government issue or forensic issue or military issue doing uh, kind of uh, a body, I was very concerned about where my DNA was going to end up. But as it was explained to me by yet another African-American woman who happens to be the CEO, Gina Page of African Ancestry, uh, my fears were allayed, and I decided to take the DNA test uh, at the strong recommendation of these two women. So in doing so, um, there was a woman who actually uh, saw that I was fulfilling a folklore uh, that gave me the title of the book, A Man from Another Land. It was in Yande Manga. My tribal mother now there in, in Galu, in the Bagway Chieftain in Sierra Leone, that looked at me uh, when she saw me on the television and said that I looked like in her, in this discomfort, this dream that she had, that I was the man, a man from another land that will come back to Sierra Leone to help, and I had to help uh, rebuild uh, Sierra Leone to its, its former greatness. Well, you know, one one of the things that 
I think your 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 insightfulness and your intuitiveness as a child was that struck me in the book as you tell that part of the story is that you were open. You're a very open man. How did that work in Hollywood? <laughs> well, I, I, I knew early on. I never wanted to live here. I never wanted to come here. Um, I, I followed yet another woman who happens to be my wife now, almost 15 years. It's February 14th. I followed her uh, because I, I dreamt her up. She, as you know in the book, I put up a photograph, a painting that I fell in love with. That this is how I want my wife to look if I were to meet her. And the moment I met her um, um, in, uh, what was it, I think November of 1995, October 1995, I wrote love letters to her from Brooklyn for three months, and then I asked her for her hand in marriage um, three months later. After never living with her or going dating her, I just knew that she was my wife, according to the dream, according to my meditation on that painting that you have in the book. I just felt right. And I think anything that is organic and authentic is as easy as breathing. You don't have to think twice about it. It's not something that's random. It's not something that is a knee-jerk reaction or being irresponsible. It just is. And I really feel that I've always been attuned to the, the African way. In Africa, it, it, things are, it, it just is. And that is what it is. They operate on what is. Um, whereas anywhere else in the world, Europe and North America, they operate off of what they want you want it to be. And I, I feel that that inner being, that inner GPS, that inner dialogue, which many of us call God in, in Christianity, I believe is the core of, of what the DNA allows us to have in our memory. That is the thing that I'm trying to prophesize is that I believe that collectively all of us, all human beings, know right from wrong, and, of course, there's a big gray area in the middle that has a lot of temptation and distraction that will cause us to take pause and do things that we, we know is not right. But in our deeper consciousness, I believe that in the 21st century, we've gone so far with IT and technology that the only thing that we have is the thing that Mother Africa has given us, and that is our natural intuitive instinct on survival, which we've been very good at as African Americans and Africans. But now is the high time for us to take that history take that technology, take that innovativeness, and take that chutzpah and go back to Mother Africa and help her heal. I mean, at the end of the day, we are no longer minorities as people of color. That is just a fact. It's a fact that Malcolm X talked about and was criticized for. It's a fact that many historians talked about and was criticized for. The, the gig is up. This idea of superiority and inferiority, uh, and even the idea of race. You know, it may seem like I'm contradicting myself, but the idea of a race, no. that, that is up, you know. Yeah, it's, it's a construct. It's, it's about where we are inside, and Bob Marley has written songs about it. Many people have talked about that inner voice, and I really believe that inner voice is Mother Africa calling her best and her brightest back home to get it right so we can address all the ills in society around the world. I really believe that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... You know, one of the things that in, in looking and in, in reading about your journey um, that I was curious about that really struck me, uh, from, your, from your childhood in Houston um, and you're going to the Air Force, that was kind of like so different from everything else you describe about how you saw your worldview. How did that happen? 
again, I, I think it's divine destiny. Um, I, in the book, I really coined the idea that there are no randomness. Uh, there is no such thing as coincidence. Mm-hmm. I believe that once we get on the idea that DNA has memory, that every single thing happens for a reason, good or bad. The only bad thing is indifference in this world, uh, because if you are indifferent, then you don't care either way. Even love and hate is, you know, hatred and love connects people. You know, it keeps you talking about something, but indifference, everything stops. All the cards are off the table. So I think by me going into the military, knowing that um, the first recession in 1980 was, was very, very harsh, but it hit Houston extremely uh, hard. Uh, the community was, my suburban community was devastated. Many of the well-to-do people were walking away from their homes. And I simply just didn't want to be a, a burden on my mom once I knew that uh, she couldn't afford to put me through through college. Uh, when I didn't get the degree, as I explained in my football scholarship, um, I didn't want to be a burden on her. I think she had worked hard enough for the 10th grade education to provide me with everything that I needed for those 17 years. And it was time for me to uh, go out and strike out on my own um, and try to find out my destiny on my own. And that's what I did. And then in doing that, um, that experience of four years opened my eyes up to other things and other pieces of literature, and which brought me here, a better understanding of what I didn't want to be a part of uh, once I saw the inner mechanisms of what the United States uh, Air Force and the military uh, experience was about. I realized quickly that I didn't want to give 20 years of my life to that. Mm-hmm. You know, many of us have uh, experiences where people walk up to us. I'm, I'm often um, approached and said, I know that you're from Jamaica. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> but, and, and we don't understand, nor do we give very much thought about it. But um, you gave thought to it when people conf- um, approached you and said, oh, you must be African. Yeah. Um, again, you know, uh, this idea of, of destiny dragging you by your heels, kicking and screaming, yes. is relevant. Um, I didn't know, you know, if you reached out to me in 1981, 82, 83, 84, and showed me a picture of Malcolm X, I wouldn't have known who he was. If you showed me a mm-hmm. picture of Honorable Temp. County Cullen, Dornell Houston, and James Baldwin, I would have known who he was or who she mm-hmm. was. If you showed mm-hmm. me a picture of Ida B. Wells or Fannie Lou Hamer um, or even Dorothy Height, I would have known who these people were. Uh, so in finding out where I was from and having this thirst of trying to figure out who I was before the Antebellum South, I also was introduced to my own American history, which is African-American history, and women's studies like Audre Lorde and Nikki Giovanni and the importance of Angela Davis. I knew nothing about the Black Panther at the age of 25, nothing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So my thirst for trying to find out who I was by trying to join forces in New York with Dr. Ben Jokana or Dr. Ben, Mm -hmm. It opened up all these other things. A friend gave me a copy of the autobiography of Malcolm X, you know, at Howard University. I was 23 years old at the time. I read two books, the autobiography of Malcolm X and a book by uh, G. Gordon Liddick called Will, because at that time I was ate up in the military. I thought I was going to be the next Colin Powell, next General Washington. So everything Mm -hmm. I read was by Robert Ludlum or Tom Clancy, you know, or just for, you know, 
a different experience. I would throw in a Danielle Steele uh, book only because I saw these books in supermarkets. So I thought well, that was the literature that I was supposed to read to excel. Um, I had no uh, education on, on who uh, Richard Wright was and the Harlem Renaissance at the age of 23 to 25, none whatsoever. It wasn't until uh, the eve of my 26th birthday that I began this journey, as you know, introduced to all these things by Harry Potter. And I'm eternally grateful for that because it put me on a course that allows me to be on this conversation with you today. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm really um, find that it is so striking that everything that came your way in life seemed to have a thread, a golden thread connected to where you are now. Um, and and one of the things that I think about is how you lost your father and the colorism issues that you faced at Howard University when you were a student there and the fact that your acting career took you to Nambia in 1998 uh, to, to shoot a movie. And that really was the turning point to bring all these threads together. Oh, absolutely. Um, and it, it, it just, it's just so striking that you seem to be at a place each point in your life to be prepared for this. And then what you do once you understand who your ancestors are and embrace that and your history, you were prepared to, to act, to do something, to not just allow it to be a fact of life, but to make the fact a verb. And it's just a, an amazing, amazing a way in which you can see your journey. And maybe it's because you wrote the book, but, uh, but I think you were seeing this. Were you seeing this? Well, not clearly, as, as I, I've been afforded to through God's will um, and my ancestors, and and standing in the center with the Chief Babalaos in, in, in the Mecca of Brooklyn and Harlem. All of these experiences were an amalgamation of, of me being the best soldier, the best warrior, the best social scientist in this purpose. Uh, like I said, I'm just a mere mustard seed. Uh, uh, of, 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 a, of an idea um, that is hopefully will evolve us as a people. I cannot take ownership of it because it doesn't belong to me. So, yes, the, the, the picture became clearer and clearer, um, I think, by the time I was catapulted out of the grave. You know, and my mm-hmm. attorney came into my office and he looked at my mementos. We standing next to Condoleezza Rice and uh, comfortably with George Bush and the First Lady Laura Bush and all these different people on both sides of the, the political uh, uh, fence and, and having access to all these other leaders like Cornell West and Skip Gates and all these people. And he's like, my God, man. He says, you need to write a book, you know. <laughs> your journey and your interest, their interest is not just, you're not just an actor, man. And mm-hmm. that's who I think. I think he's the first person I think in the book. It's my attorney, uh, Ricky Anderson, there in my hometown of Houston. Um, so all of these dots began to, they were already connected before I was born, August 3rd, 1963. God already knew my purpose before I did. He just drove me through um, the fire uh, to get me to this, this conversation right now. And he's, 
he or she is still preparing me uh, yes. for my purpose. And there's nothing more gratifying and galvanizing and beautiful with money in the bank or not is to know why you were born, to know why your life, why I was given life, you know. Yeah. And that's all I'm trying to share in this journey is that every one of us has a specific purpose. Every last one of us has have a, a genius. Every last one of us has this uh, uh, ability to access our purpose through our dreams and through these so-called uh, deja vus or these random acts or these these moments of coincidence. They're not coincidence. They're messages. They're messages okay. that exceed Christianity, exceed you know Hinduism, exceed Islam. It exceed all these these beautiful beautiful gateways. Uh, organized religions, these which I believe in, that are necessary, but they're merely gateways to our spiritual value. And our spiritual value is one. We're all connected. That's one thing I know, that if the slaveholders could change, if they could destroy our chromosome, our genetic marker that connects us to the mitochondrial DNA, the first woman in the cradle of this place, well, was gone from land of Kemet to Ethiopia, uh, the land of Ethiopia to now Africa. You know, after that Roman, Serpentina's Africanus that showed up there and they named it Africa. Now it's called Africa and now various countries because of the colonization of it. This place, mm-hmm. this holy land, you know, and the truth is in all of us. This is now here in the 21st century with a Kenyan American in the White House are we really going to decide to listen to what we know is true, or are we going to continue to be complacent and disappointed by what we know is not true? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, um, one of the experiences I've had over 20 years in broadcast, and you talk about Dr. Ben and uh, early on in this broadcast when we were broadcasting from South Florida, Dr. Ben was a frequent guest on the show. And one of the things that your the, the type of journey that you have taken, the kind of insight you have into your own life does for people is to give them surety. Surety in the sense that I'm, I, I'm seeing, I'm feeling, I have an intuition about something, and I'm not sure if this is real or not. And your book, does that this book made me laugh cry i was mad i got sad um but but it makes the reader see and understand that there is memory inside your heart inside and and that is what the soul is all about it gives some clarity to that and brings and brings surety and i i really thank you for taking the time to to write about your experiences and and after reading your story, I'm not sure that you would never have been able to walk away without writing the story. But one of the most amazing parts of this is what you have done since you discovered who you are, or since you put put all the blocks together. It was like a uh, a Lego puzzle or. Um, Whatever my I, grandson. I, I used to jokingly, I used to jokingly say, I guess in the recent 40th anniversary of BT and Soul Train, I said what I've been able to do is like, you know, putting the Soul Train puzzle together. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> I know. 
you know, and 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 the thing is uh, about your story is that you haven't gotten, you know, sometimes activists especially can get seeped into such seriousness and such serious focus that they lose sight of people who are not at the place in the place where they are. And you have not done that. You have simply said, this is what it is, and I'm here. Um, <laughs> and, and that's just so so very wonderful. Um, I am um, just so grateful. I, I wish this book were on audio, and I hope that that happens. Now, the people in my audience, especially my daughter who is listening, who's a huge fan of of yours uh, from your movies and your your TV series Grey's Anatomy would would hold me accountable for not talking about your movie and TV career but it is also one of the lego pieces and that is that at one day you said gee I'd like to do that in 5 years or I, I don't remember if it was 5 years or 10 years I want to be doing uh Spike Lee movies, and in fact, you were doing them in much less time. How did that happen? Did you just, I can see you picking up the phone and calling Spike Lee, because you both lived in Brooklyn at the time, and saying, hey, I want to be in one of your movies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but how I mean, did it happen? <laughs> it was, I mean, people would look at me like, I, I, you know, I was a raving lunatic for most of my life. I would get these ideas, and my mother and my grandmother was like, oh, my God, we just, you, you know, where did you come up with this stuff? You know, and uh-huh. I was always assured that, you know, it was like breathing. When it hit me, it, 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 I didn't have a choice. After see she's got to have it. My life was changing personally. I was acting out, doing a lot of stupid things because I wasn't happy. And then I thought she's got to have it. And I decided, well, from my engineering background, let me put a 10-year plan together. I also know uh-huh. that most people put five-year plans together, which I think is ridiculous. Nothing is going to change for you in five years. If it's important enough, that's the problem with the missionary idea that's dealing with the continent. They only give it a five-year window, and if it's not, you know, changed in five years, something you're trying to address, a 400-year problem, if it doesn't change in five years, you wrap it up and walk away. You know, or by two, 2.5 years, oh, it's, you know, it's not successful. Or, you know, you know, from the age of 30 to 35, if I'm not a millionaire, then I'm never going to be one. It, it, it just doesn't work that way. And I, everything I do, I put myself on a 10-year plan so I can have a, a, a distraction ratio, I can have a failure ratio, I can fall off, you know, with a course and then get back on. To do something in 10 years is more realistic than to try to do something in two or five. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, what that also does is organize your thoughts, to organize your, your willpower, and it focuses you in such a dynamic way that at least you're giving yourself 10 years if God wants you to live not you can make all the mistakes, you know, in this experiment, and, and that's the beauty about being a human being is, if I make five thousand six hundred and seventy-one mistakes, by the time I get to that five thousand six hundred and seventy-second, maybe that's the right move, and then that's the eureka moment. Then that's the thing that will define me and hopefully evolve all of us because I got it right. But you know, mm-hmm. we society we beat each other up. Well, he made he made five thousand six hundred and seventy-one mistakes. Yeah. You know, he yeah. has no credibility. He's a failure. Well, wait a minute. It's good to make those kinds of mistakes because it's an experiment, you know. It's all an mm-hmm. experiment. And that's how I've used my life as 
I think the more mistakes I make, uh, the better human being I'm going to become. Yeah, because you've been on on that route. You've been on that route, and then you make the calculations. Um, It's just like anyone playing Halo. You know, these kids play the game for hours and hours, trial and error, trial and error, trial and error, and then you could, they're filing like a a rat in a labyrinth. They figure it out, they get it right based on an algorithm, and they get to the next level. That's that's life. You know, you like golf. You have 18 holes. If you're fretting over playing the second and the fourth and the seventh holes horribly, then you're going to mess up the, the next few holes to get to the 18th hole, and you're not going to have a low score. It's mm-hmm. the same as the same test. <laughs> now, you you got so many awards for being Dr. Preston Burke, um, and 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 don't be mad at me. I only know Grey's Anatomy through uh, a very enthusiastic fan who is my daughter who's listening tonight. <laughs> so that was before my TV thing. Uh, so uh, how did your peers in the movie and TV industry respond to what was going on with you and obviously a very different kind of character in how you your worldview brought you in a, from a different angle and perspective on stuff were you an anomaly in this in in that industry? I I, I felt like I've always been an anomaly. Uh, I, I I never wanted to cut my locks and my goatee from my earlier work because I came out here initially to make you know locks and hair and facial hair on an African American man or a woman a non issue. Uh, I I purposely used my 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 putting my family and my my at risk financially because I purposely went after roles that I could, you know, play uh, Queen Latifah's boyfriend as an anesthesiologist who was not physically um, um, good at playing baseball, and you could see that. I purposely challenged the stereotype. Uh, I always Uh used my work as a bit of a social scientist, and I said, well, everyone kept telling me, well, you know, there's only room for Denzel and Will Smith and Eddie Murphy and Wesley Snipes, and, you know, you know, you, you, I'm not, you know, you have to wait your, and I always say, wait a minute, so I, I can't have a career because Denzel is the man? So I was like, that, that's ridiculous to me. So I said, well, okay, then I'll create my own niche. I'll, I'll, I'll play enough perfectly quirky or offbeat characters that would normally just be thugs but would now be perceived as intellectuals or beautiful or different or interesting from Love Jones to Romeo Must Die. I always push the envelope by changing that role, uh, that stereotypical role, the moment I got the job. But I was always trying to be crafty enough to say, well, to the producers and the directors that, okay, I'll play this role as a thug with gold fronts and gold chains and Stacey Adams shoes that's untied. But once I got the contract and the deal, the most beautiful thing that my one of my agents gave me was a clause in my contract that said consultation, which means I have consultation rights, which means, that once I agree to play this character, you can't make me do anything I don't want to do with that character as long as my image is attached to it. That was the most mm-hmm. brilliant stroke of power that was given to me because I could say, well, the character is supposed to be Step and Fetch. Well, once I get into the meeting, they say, well, you're going to play Step and Fetch. And I say, okay, that's great. Well, once I sign the contract and I got consultation, they can say, okay, the first day you're going to show up and act like Step and Fetch, right? And I'll say, no. Uh, actually, I'm going to show up and act like Dr. Burke. 
And they go, you can't do that. And I said, well, let's check the contract. Uh-huh. So well, I that's a lot of power it, in that industry. Yeah, I was changing, changing these stereotypical images uh, with my own, uh, you know, courage to be oh, – I, I, I I've been almost fired from every job I've ever had in this, in this town. In fact, an agent has never gotten me one job. All of my work for my previous work has always been offered um, because someone saw my work and they saw the uh, – maybe it was, you know, authentic to them or it felt credible and it felt worth But I had, to, I had to work for it. I had to almost lose a job to put that credibility out there that actually got me more work. It was a, a mm-hmm. very strange uh, irony in Catch-22 in this town. So that's how I got the level, label of being difficult because every role that you see me in, uh, even the first day on the set of Love Jones, I had a producer come in my trailer and what with Clifford wanted to cut my hair. And I said, why? He said, because you don't look like a tenure professor that would be teaching at Northwestern University. And I said, well, what does a tenured professor, African-American professor, supposed to look like in this particular uh-huh. field? And I said, well, I'm not cutting my locks. I'm not cutting my beard. Uh, so you can send me back to L.A. And there was a standoff. And finally the, the director and the other producer came on and said, look, we knew he, he, he had the same look that he had when he was going to get on the bus. We want him to keep his hair. What does his hair have to do with his intellect? So that battle was won, and Saban was created. But it, mm-hmm. it, all of my characters have been created under duress. <laughs> Every last You're, one of them. Uh-huh, and, and, and that has really paid off in big dividends in the, in the other areas of, of your life because your greatest role, as far as I'm concerned, is becoming a, uh, a chief among the Mende people, um, <laughs> even though my favorite movie is Crooklyn. <laughs> so I will say that. Thank you. Um, it, 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 it's, it's one of the things, and uh, one of the things I do want to say to the audience, if you have, you must read this book because it helps you to establish that you are not a strange being or an alien walking this land, that you belong somewhere, that your name is not Toby, as I always say on this show. Your name is not Toby. Were you given a name by, by, your, um, by your people in the Mende uh, peoples um, when you became a chief? Was there a, a ceremony? I, I know there was a ceremony. But was there a naming ceremony? Yes, the naming uh, ceremony is documented with photographs that have never been seen coming out of Bogway Chiefdom, where there's over 300 people in the processional that carried me a, a quarter of a mile uh, to the headstone of Chief Gondebe Manga, the first of uh, the name Gondebe uh, in Dwerva Manga is my chiefdom name. Uh, uh, Gondebe hadn't been used in Sierra Leone or with the, the Mende uh, people of the, particularly the Manga Brima family, one of the most powerful families in the Mende Timne uh, peoples in Sierra Leone in the south. That name hadn't been used for 300 years. So I'm going to be the second, I'm going to be mm-hmm. in Guerra Manga the second, um, which was only designed to be given to um, um, a individual who they felt was worthy of it. And Trust me, I'm, I'm still working very, very hard to live up to that name. Uh, the first gun to Bay actually died 
um, was so powerful in fighting against the British that they waited till he was, you know, uh, sleeping with uh, a few women of his wives and had, had been drunk the night, got him drunk the night before, and then attacked his village of Ingalu to take over the land. And he he fought as long as he could uh, for that land as he was being invaded by uh, competing tribes uh, from the east as well as the British, and he died uh, fighting. And that is where in the book you see me uh, being inducted, the naming ceremony, and you see me bending over at a headstone. That was uh, the headstone of, of Chief Gondebe, uh Manga the first, who died mm-hmm. in the, uh, fate, the late 1700s. And that is where you got the name of your foundation that uh, you started as a result of this journey, the Gondebe Manga Foundation. Tell us about that. Well, you know, when you think of a foundation, you think of millions of dollars, and really it isn't. My foundation really exists of me and three other committed individuals there on the ground in Sierra Leone uh, that do everything that I need to do when we can afford to do it. Uh, and we've done a pretty banged-up job uh, addressing the issues of 300 students in my school uh, with, with very little support that other than uh, this wonderful co- uh, community of, of, of philo- philosophers in New Jersey called the, uh, single fam- the Siegel Family Foundation and Barry Siegel and Martin Siegel. Uh, they've been one of my uh, probably most uh, steadfast uh, uh, supporters over the years, as well as Maria uh, Elena Lamas and Tola Lamas out of uh, – uh, Cora Gables, Florida, in the early times that I documented the book, uh, been probably my only supporters uh, outside of my own resources in the foundation. So it, it's, it's been a, a struggle and a tough journey, but we, we're getting it done. And, and, and things like this and the book and conversations like this, it's starting to let people know that, wow, I, there are more friends that I would like to have to accelerate uh, this opportunity, this thought of uh, addressing one village at a time and asking the people what they want as opposed to coming in with this missionary idea and saying, well, we're smarter than you, we're better than you, we have more innovation and technology, we're going to tell you what you need. And that's not what the people of Africa, and that's certainly not what my people want. They know what they want. They don't need ownership. They just need a leg up. They need a shovel, the rubber boots. They'll build it themselves. They know exactly what they want. They have known for thousands of years. Uh, They just need a leg up uh, to support themselves and their dignity, and they'll take care of it from there, and that's what I've been doing. Well, in addition to uh, reading the book, buying the book and reading the book, and uh, one of the things um, that I plan on doing is your life certainly must be a beacon to other African American, especially males in in our community. How can our listeners uh, assist the um, Gondobe Manga uh, Foundation? Because one of the things that we know is 9% of uh, Sierra Leone's population lives below poverty, and 28% uh, are living in rural areas that, that simply have no access to clean water. Uh, is there a way in which our listeners can become uh, a partner or, or uh, provide financial support to the foundation, and how do they do that? Well, you know, I think, you know, the suspicion level of, of any organization is always proven by its deeds. If you look at my website, it's very transparent in terms of what I'm doing. My struggle is real. But what I, the reason, one, one of the reasons why I wrote the book is that once, obviously, I, I started this foundation thinking I was going to be on this hit show for 10 years. 
and I wouldn't be asking anyone for anything. I was happily mm-hmm. using my own resources and quietly getting things done. Obviously, it did not pan out that way. Obviously, I'm supposed to be on the phone talking to you and your listeners. So what I would say is that, you know, help this book become a bestseller. You know, get me past 18,000 copies sold. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't get the support mm-hmm. with the with the, the, the media uh, for various reasons. Uh, it's been out for six months. I didn't think I would. Uh, there's still a lot of... Uh, you know, uh, you know, angry people for whatever reason they want to hold on to holding me down or me back when they're not. Um, but ultimately, my reason for writing the book was not only to sustain the foundation, but to sustain myself. Uh, and the thought was is that wow, this book becomes was going to sell eighteen thousand copies. You know, they gave me a really nice advance, thinking that my fans and supporters around the world would buy this book. Um, uh-huh. But we found out that a, a lot of uh, you know places of had the book and they put them in the basement, not to be found. There have been some unfair practices around the country of intentionally hiding my book from the public, even though their uh-huh. job is to sell it. So my uh-huh. thing is, is go to Amazon.com, you know, and, and do a campaign at least sell, you know, a quarter of a million copies. Then that alone, the capital from that, from Hachette Book Group, will be able to fund all the the the, the mandates that I've already lined up. For three years ago to accelerate what it is that I'm doing uh, in Sierra Leone. That's one start. And then that way, as the book I know is being uh, sold, generating capital for myself and the foundation to do what I need to do, I'm not asking anyone for a dime. I'm just asking them to support the manifesto, my testimony, the book. And in doing that, I can take it from there and then show the world transparently what is being done. So whatever money they're putting into the book, be it uh, on Nook or Kindle or Amazon.com or demanding that Barnes & Noble order that book and they pay the full mm-hmm. price of $27, then that's helping me and the people of Sierra Leone directly without you saying, hey, here's $100 to your foundation. I don't know what you're <laughs> going to do with it. You know, I don't know how mm-hmm. I know what you're going to spend it. Well, you'll know where the money is going to go once this book becomes a bestseller because then that would tell the, the corporation that, okay, the book is making money, they get their money back, and now – the world, not only is it making money in the bestseller list, but now the rest of the world is getting an idea of what we're talking about on this on this call tonight. And then that that is the bigger picture, is that people are understanding the message and at the same time helping me help those who can help themselves. So one of the things, we're alternative activists, empowerment radio folks, and if you, whoever your bookseller is, this is such an important story you should check to see if this book is being sold at your bookseller. It's being sold. You can pick it up at Amazon.com, but you need to find out where you buy your books. If this, this, this story, Isaiah, is way too important because our people need to have real hope, not false hope, and they have to find a fountain, a source of belief and hope somewhere. And in your story, I see some of that. Until we get real about our pain, folks, and understand where it's coming from and how to stabilize it, we're going to be suffering from Louis Dewey disease forever. So Kwanzaa is coming up. If you celebrate Christmas, it's coming up. And this is a wonderful gift of life, this book. Life not only uh, about self-discovery and identity, 
but it is also a book that does some good. And that is where we've got to start focusing our lives because worrying about how many books Herman Herman Cain is selling or Barack Obama is selling is one thing. But finding sources to give richness to our lives, to to have revelation and find self-redemption is is another journey that every one of us should be on, and I hope that you will buy this book. And I also hope, and I'm going to be posting uh, the link to the um, Gondo Bay Manga Foundation in our chat room so that you can go, go there and learn more about the work that uh, this wonderful foundation is doing. We have got to start really strengthening the ties to not only the spirit of our ancestors, but to the place from whence we come. This is our motherland. And, and I think the, most, the, the bigger picture is, is that I buried it in the end of the book about my dream of creating a consultancy firm called Sheila International uh, Investment Group. Just like the Black Star Line, uh, I've studied all about Pan-Africanists and, um, why, and I've studied why I think they failed. Uh, and I, the reason I feel they failed is because Deputy Du Bois obviously was at odds uh, with Marcus Garvey. He played the light-skinned, dark-skinned card just like Muhammad Ali did with, with Joe Frazier, God rest his soul. Uh, someone had to pick uh, who was going to be on the pedestal and leader. And what I loved about Adam Clayton Paul Jr., he married a brown-skinned woman intentionally to show his politics. But he also he shared his nationalism uh, with, with Martin, uh, Martin Luther King as well as as Malcolm X during the time, and he was one of the most powerful leaders as a congressman and as a leader in the Abyssinian church and come from a very long line of powerful orators. But I loved him because he looked like Cal Calloway, but just like Paul R. Williams, who was a wonderful architect here who could have easily passed, uh, was very interested in, in helping supporting the, the fight of the Negro as well as Langston Hughes. And that's why I started the chapter off with this light-skinned, dark-skinned thing is because somehow, you know, it, it continues to raise its ugly head when the, when the going gets tough, uh, you know, we separate ourselves uh, by trying to get the support of the moderate or the white moderate or the liberal uh, to find some kind of sense of uh, solace and complacency. And that has to stop, first and foremost. Uh, we can't continue to do that to each other, number one. But number two, what I'm trying to, to put in, in, in layman's terms is that early on in my career, I knew my shelf life was short. I knew my days were numbered. So that's why I trained myself. I got over my fear of understanding the tickers of Wall Street. And I talk about it in the book as how I started my own portfolio. I created my first portfolio starting in 1997, and thank God I had that, that money put away because when I needed it, uh, it was there, <laughs> you know, uh, my little uh, kitty, as I called it. But mm-hmm. the, the beauty about understanding how Wall Street works and how you can actually make money by using your instinct or using your, your critical analysis as a thinking human being, uh, can also provide income for you for little or nothing. All you need is one share of Google, you know what I mean, and be able to put that money away and get a decent dividend. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, you have to pay your taxes on it. But that's money I would try to get our community to understand that you should not have a resentment or fear of Wall Street. Of course, you a fear of those who abuse Wall Street and all the things that uh, that is available to them, but that's any criminal behavior you should not get behind. 
But what I'm trying to strongly suggest is that once you understand something that's not supposed to be for you, it's all of you for like white people get past that playing golf or playing chess or sailing, these things we 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 were the creators of. We invented the, the street sweeping machine, ice cream, the doorknob, uh, the first uh, open heart case. I mean, African Americans have been the inventors of things, the ironing, the ironing board, even kung fu. And once we really understand who we are and not use it as a, a source of superiority or some false sense of superiority over another minority, which are not people, the people that are truly the minorities are the people that are that are uh, uh, that share are uh, 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 melanin deficient or challenged. They are truly the minorities, and that's why we are in the situation we is, is because for too long we've allowed ourselves to be called a minority. It's just simply ridiculous. There's, there's more people of color in this planet than there are of people that are melanin challenged, and that's not their fault. That all goes back to, you know, the history of anthropology and why we know how the migration started out of that, that great that great continent called now called Africa. But there's so much that we need to do that we can help ourselves with by just understanding how to create, you know, a relationship with, with uh, Morgan Stanley in the right way with rightful behavior and understanding that Charles Schwab can help us by just investing in things in your house. If you buy Tide or Paul Mollus, things that you spend your hard-earned money on just every day, toilet paper, mm-hmm. find out who owns that company and buy a share. You're going to buy that gas anyway if you're not driving mm-hmm. a Prius. You're going to, you're going to spend your hard-earned money watching DirecTV, so find out what company owns it and buy a share in it. And if you don't become a shareholder, then you're going to always be the product of a slaveholder. Right. You know, it's really interesting that you're talking about this. My 10-year-old grandson uh, wrote an essay this week for his investment class uh, <laughs> on how to uh, prepare to buy amazing stocks. And one of the things that I was going to inform my audience about during this broadcast tonight is about OneShare.com, where we buy stocks for ch- where you can buy one stock one share of stock in companies that children identify with, like um, um, McDonald's and DreamWorks and other things. And I think that we do have to have a certain level of, of financial literacy education going on in our homes. And I'm so glad that you said that, uh, because unless we become consumers with power, we will always just be people who are spending money and getting poorer and poorer and not having any presence in the economy at all. Thank you, Isaiah, for, for talking about that. Um, we're going to – go ahead. Right. No, I was just saying, you know, $96 billion comes out of black hands, $96 billion a year just in travel and tourism alone, between all the sororities and fraternities that get on cruise ships and – all, I mean, not knocking them, but all these crews that are taken around the world from African Americans alone, $96 billion is spent in travel just from the African American community alone. $96 billion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, 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 and we have no real presence, serious presence in this economy. And um, one of our guests from a couple of weeks ago, Sandy Darity, who is an econ- who is an economist and professor of public policy and economics at Duke University just wrote a very very revealing um article uh last week about 
the presence of African Americans in the one percenters, and it is it is startling and it is sad. Um, and and when you talk about the dollars that we put into the economy, there is nothing significantly coming back to us. Uh, Isaiah, uh, I know that you are going to have to leave. I do want to give my audience an opportunity to um, ask questions and and to talk to you, Uh, and we need to take a break for those of you who are just joining us. This is Our Common Ground, and um, our guest tonight is the good brother. I've been calling you the good brother all week. And you know, and, and I, I really think of you um as yet another son. I after twenty years I think that I'm gathering up a lot of sons and daughters on this broadcast. <laughs> It didn't used to be that way. You're listening to Our Common Ground. Our guest, Isaiah Washington, the award-winning TV and movie actor, the author of Man from Another Land. A Man from Another Land is a book. You can pick it up at Amazon.com. And he is also the founder of the Gondo Bay Manga uh, foundation, and you can learn more about that if you come into our chat room at blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. I'm Janice Graham, and we'll be right back. Words have power, the power to express love, happiness, and joy. They also have the power to heal. When you use words that demean a person because of their sexual orientation, race, or gender, you send a message of hate, a very powerful message. But we all have the power to demand better from one another and ourselves. We have the power to heal and change the world with the words we use. We looked at looked into the eyes of evil, pure evil, and said to ourselves, "What is this country coming to? What have these bigoted race and our repeated bigoted races?" Anybody wants to challenge me on that? Have that. Have that. Reload some alpha, the Mo Alpha Show, on TruthWorks Network. More of the Alpha Show, 4 p.m., TruthWorks Network.
You're listening to Our Common Ground. Kick ass, black, and bold. Talk radio that matters. I'm Janice Grant, and I'll be speaking truth to power. Saturday, 10 p.m., Our Common Ground. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And we want to thank you for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Here are some program notes for you before we open our phones, and you can talk with Isaiah Washington, who is our guest tonight. Uh, On Monday night, Dr. Nathan Hare of the Black Think Tank uh, Consulting Group in San Francisco, a long-term um, soldier in the liberation of African Americans, a scholar, professor, and an author, will be on TruthWorks Network with Global Village Voices with Peter E. Matthews, and that will be at 9 p.m., and we hope that you will join us. TruthWorks is a broadcast product of Our Common Ground, and we have a full week of Uh, broadcasting going on at TruthWorks on Thursday and Friday nights. Into the Lion's Den with the Sons of Huey Newton, 10 p.m. That's a new time, 10 p.m. with LDX, an information man. And, of course, the most rock-throwing, gritty politics on the Internet with the Alpha Show at 3 p.m. TruthWorks Network. And we want to thank you for being with us here tonight. Our number is 347-838-9852, and we'll take your calls. You must dial 1 after you call in in order to talk with our guest tonight, Isaiah Washington. Dear Brother Isaiah Washington, one of the things that I did want to say to you is that I think that um, one of the things that I haven't seen, and you can tell us about that, is that are you on some uh, book tour, and where are you going, and are you going to HBCUs? What cities are you going to? Uh, yes. I, uh, the book company put me on a, a five-city book tour starting uh, May 3rd. I was on the Today Show. Uh, you can look at some of the interviews on my YouTube website. Um, a man from another land, uh, back, uh, uh, back home, um, I'm sorry, a man from another land, backslash. I was on the Today Show talking about it May 3rd. I was on um, various uh, uh, shows uh, in New York City. Um, uh, somehow, I, I don't know, I missed the African-American community. I don't know how, but uh, but I guess it goes to show that the, the, the book group was only thinking of maybe my uh, Eurocentric fan base uh, based on Grey's Anatomy, and I, and I think now that pretty much backfired. Because, um, uh, yeah, the book has been out for since April 27th, six months now, over six months. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, yes, I did Atlanta, I did Dallas, I did uh, uh, Fort Worth, I did uh, New York, um, Martha uh, uh, Allen, who was very supportive at uh, her uh, bookstore in Harlem. 
Uh, so yeah, I, I was I was all over the country, and um, um, but somehow I, I, I'm still sad and disheartened that the uh, majority of the people that the book really would speak to have no idea that the book has been out there. Mm-hmm. What about some of the black book clubs? Uh, <laughs> I'm open to them. Send them my way. Okay. <laughs> you know? okay. I just don't think that you know. Again, uh, um, uh, my my representation at the time, I, I just wasn't focusing on on I guess black book clubs because unfortunately, I think in their DNA memory, uh, they still uh-huh. feel that uh, black book clubs are not relevant, which I think is is still sad. Well, one of the things that I'm committed to do, we have an awful lot of scholars and professors um, who uh, come to this show as our guests who have, over the years, we have groomed uh, uh, great relationships with. And I'm certainly going to, I'm I'm surprised to hear that, Uh, African-American studies programs. I'm, I'm really surprised to hear that this book has not come up, and I'm certainly um, going to um, send an email to our guest list um, about the book. I mean, when 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 I first saw that it was published, I I had heard little tits and bits, bits about your journey, and I was really excited to be able to read the book. Um, I'm I'm not surprised how vitriolic people can be in their limited political ideology and cultural ideology. And the 2007 incident um, has lingered so long with with your fans because I just thought you were a rock star based on, and my daughter doesn't get excited about a lot of things, but she was real excited about this Dr. Preston Burke man. Uh, <laughs> and and I'm 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 really surprised that even with your your ties to um Spike Lee's production and um the work that Skip Gates is doing that this book hasn't moved uh in a in a greater sphere. And we've gotta fix that. And I hope people out there are listening. They are completely changed and galvanized. Yes. But, you know, the the media, has, I have been gone for so long, people assume that, oh, uh, it's not a tell-all about what supposedly purportedly happened. I already talked about that. I did a, look at the transcripts on Larry King. You can't get any bigger than that. I've already uh-huh. spoke my piece uh, on what mm-hmm. really happened on that October 9th day and what prompted me to, to make the misstep that I made that I already apologized for at the Golden Globes. Uh, so uh-huh. that, in my mind, has already been, been done. Um, but for whatever reasons, you know, people – just in general, just don't want to talk about Africa, <laughs> you know. And yeah, they, they're, yeah. I guess they're confused. It's like, you know, why am I an authority on talking about Africa? But then once they read the book, then they go, oh my God, uh, yeah. we get it. Yeah, we get it. Yeah, we get it. Now, at least that's, that's, the, that's the, the response to the feedback I've been getting is that people, well, like, what is the book is about? I don't get it. And then when they read it, oh my God, they're uh-huh. they're they're really uh, glad that they did. <laughs> but you know you are you also are a peripheral victim of what I call the superficiality of people who get involved in issues having to do with ancestry 
and the DNA testing because at one time all the actors and the, the, the people, the celebrities, and they were really getting into getting the DNA testing and, and then nothing happened and it didn't mean much to them. And fortunately it meant a lot to you. Right. Um, so, so you may be a peripheral victim of that. But one of the things um, that I don't understand is that all of the scholars who talk about this in, this whole notion of having DNA memory have not been just full throttle on your story. And we're going to do what we can uh, to fix that because I, th- I think the book is, is just very important. I mean, this is at the heart of our pain and our struggle because, you know, I, I want to tell you this, Isaiah, many years ago, you know, I grew up in a segregated community in South Florida, West Palm Beach, Florida. I come from a race family in in, in the sense that I grew up and everything was about community in my house. There was nothing. I came from a family of 21 teachers. And so they were all trying to save the whole school, every one of them. <laughs> And and the children in the community. But anyway, it's the area in which in 1929 there was the big um, hurricane that flooded the uh, Lake Okeechobee and killed hundreds of people, including migrant black migrant workers who lived in the Bell Glade area, which is west of uh, in the western part of Palm Beach County. And my grandfather was very instrumental in making sure that the city government um, would properly assess for the black victims of that storm. Well, it ended up as part of the story. Zora Neale Hurston was um, one of those migrant farmers, and she wrote the story, um, Their Eyes Were Watching God. And all of the black victims were buried, more than 200, in a common grave on the, on the skirt of the black community in West Palm Beach. A big hole was dug. They were thrown in. When my grandfather heard about this, he got together with some other businessmen, black businessmen in the community, and they, and, and they forced the city to, to at least bury them with lime so that the community wouldn't have to suffer through having um, this this common grave. Well, anyway, this story was told in my family for years and years and years. And when I read Their Eyes Were Watching God, one of the things that I did as a sponsor for my radio show was to have a conversation service. And we brought in the uh, Abobo tribe um, from South Carolina to come in and 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 do some affirmations, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, it was then that I realized that in the area where these people were buried, and they had been buried for many, many years, that's where all the drugs and shootings and the whole nine yards in that area of the city. And I often wondered, is this, is this epidemic of killing 
and crack cocaine coming as a result of the ancestors of speaking to us and talking to us and, and letting us know that we're not taking care of our children and there is bedlam as a result. Well, and that's I, I always, I, I, always I my, my, my question, my answer to that is that, you know, if we consider Mother Africa the first mother, you know, yeah, what happens when you don't listen to your mother, when you stray right. away from your mother and what she's asking you to do, how she raised you? So I think, spiritually speaking, that we've, we've been, you know, many of us know enough now and know that there's work we need to do as people of African descent, and we continue to choose to assimilate and stray away from that. And then we, mm-hmm. we wonder why we're getting lost but not allowed to be uh, participants or proper participants in a system that just mm-hmm. simply was not designed for us to participate in. It's just mind-boggling to me that people are still waiting for something that they're never going to receive. Right, right. Let's go to our phones. We've got one caller, 773, calling from Chicago. I respect you. Thank you for your call. Well, good evening, Janice, and good evening to your guest, Mr. Washington. I was uh, I was sitting here, and I'm wondering um, if, Mr. Washington, that you feel or, under, or have that belief that at some point you have basically been blackballed by a, a powerful industry that is seeking to, for no other reason, but, uh, you know, you, you, you mentioned uh, the adversarial uh, relationships you've had with producers and the like in that industry. And do you feel like that uh, somehow you've been blackballed or it's uh, even by uh, African-Americans in that industry to, you know, stay away from, you know, what you offer? Well, you know, I, 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 like I said, I've made, you know, the criticism. I've taken the criticisms of my misstep at the Golden Globe. I've apologized for that, uh, and I will continue to do so. But I merely used a word that was being, you know, burned into my soul that I talk about in the book for three months, even after I had apologized with no proof of me actually doing it to the person that it, the two people that were the biggest, uh, uh, most vocal about it are no longer on that show. My, my only question is to ask the world. No, I don't feel I've been blackballed. We had a shortly after the my scandal, we had a w a 100 day WGA strike where they tried to take our residuals from us, which is what most actors when they're not working survive on to take care of their their family needs themselves. So that was a huge hit. We lost billions of dollars in this town. Uh, number two, uh, number three, uh, September 2008 was a huge uh, 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 blow to this entire nation because of the the crash on Wall Street. So in terms of me personally, yes, I've had sort of three challenges to overcome. But in the last five years, I've worked on NBC recently. Uh, the show was canceled, Law & Order, Los Angeles, a great episode. I've paid very well. Uh, I've made three movies, and i produced a documentary in just this year. On uh, the last two years, uh, Area Q, The Under Shepherd, where Russ Carter is coming out in 2012, uh, ready to produce a film called The Suspect Outside of the System. And I, I let go of my, my, my most recent agency uh, called the APA Agency. You can validate it if you choose. Is that They asked me, Isaiah, that our Rolodex uh, is so broken. This town is so broken and how we do business. We can't even get the money to make the films we used to make. 
So they told me, if you can raise $5 million, we'll put it in a fund, bring it to us, and we'll produce whatever films you want to do. You have to understand that um, the idea of me being blackballed is just, uh, I guess, a knee-jerk reaction because I guess you get a chance to talk to me or hear me speak. But I've been very busy uh, working very hard on speaking engagements across the nation, speaking at colleges. Uh, I've written a book. It's been out for six months, so I got paid for that. So I get residuals. So, no, I don't think I've been blackballed. Um, I know there's a lot of other lead actors that do not work as much as Tyler Perry. He seems to be the only person that that is having his way with, with making films. Uh, and people, only, only people that get to work, you got to work with Tyler Perry, and that's fine. That's okay. Uh, I just choose to wait on, 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 on hopefully projects that you will receive in 2012 that will be as thought-provoking as the early years of Spike Lee, that whether you agree with the stories or not, you're at least left with the feeling that you it was money well spent, and you can at least dialogue about the experience you had. Um but the feeling of being blackballed, I, yes, there is still a simmering of certain uh, select groups that I feel that are still prejudiced for whatever reasons, even though there have been other examples that have nothing but proof. Perez Hilton, Ann Coulter, Jerry Lewis have actually used the words that I've been uh, uh, um, beaten and bludgeoned for, and they have it on record on YouTube that you can see. The evidence is there, yet you have no evidence of me using the word against anyone in a harmful matter, and you also have me on record doing the only person that have used the word that did a PSA to do it, not to save my job, but was a part of writing that, that PSA because I meant it from my heart. Now, the question of whether or not the African Americans can receive or accept me or forgive me like a Chris Brown or Jesse Jackson or anybody else that's made a misstep or a mistake then I think, sir, and women of listening, that, that is something that you have to ask yourself. What is it about you that will refuse to accept Isaiah Washington unless he's being attached as the guy who got blackballed off of this hit TV show, when in fact it is still the only character in the history of television where the general public around the world is still pining for that same actor to return to the scene of the crime to continue playing Dr. Burke? Well, <laughs> That that seems that seems to be about it too. I mean, you're right. You're right. Yeah, you know, and and the thing is, it's it was fed uh, a lot of uh, kindled wood by the media. Well, absolutely. I think that uh, most. I mean, an industry like that, and you have you know certain unsavory people who are in charge of that industry, and that's what they try to project. Yeah. Yeah, seven seven three. Thank you for your call. We've got to move on to another caller four zero four. You're on the air with Isaiah Washington. Greetings to you, Janice, and to the listening audience as well as Mr. Washington. Um, am I being heard? Can I am I coming in clear? Yes, yes you are. Thank you, Sarah, for joining us. Uh, you're so welcome, Janice and um, Isaiah. It's, it's indeed a pleasure to be able to speak with him. I heard his show on many of the other shows. Um, talk shows, I believe it was GW and Deb Smith before the show was taken off the air. And I am very, um, it's very despondent to hear what this young man is going through trying to get his book pushed into the public forum and how he's being blockaded at every possible option. Um, what, what have you tried to do? Have you contacted black bookstores, HBCUs, and other venues to try and see about getting this book? Out there, 
Uh, absolutely. I'm, I'm in talks. Actually, I'm 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 behind in my emails. I just jokingly tell my wife when I got off my book tour recently, I was I have 1,333 unread emails because I personally like to respond to each and every one email. I think it's more authentic to do so. So I'm down to 721 unread emails um, as of the last two months. So yes, I finally come across an email where uh, I was uh, reached out by just, uh, John Wilson who is the, the executive director and uh, of uh, the White House Initiative for Historical Black Colleges and University? Uh, I saw him speak. We shared a panel recently at Howard University Presidential Symposium uh, with Mark, uh, Michael Eric Dyson and Frederica Whitfield was the moderator, and um, the presidents of Morehouse and, and Howard University was there on hand, as well as Mayor Kasim Reed. And he is very open to have a conversation with me to talk about how uh, a man from another land can can be a required reading for all the students in all of the 105 historical black colleges and universities universities across the nation. So I am very uh, uh, hopeful about that conversation. Well, we do have it. If we don't have it this uh, year, we'll have it in a new year. He has reached out to me uh, um, uh, earnestly to have that conversation. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming he's already read it or is reading it. Um, so I'm very gratified that someone with that power that has a, is sitting at the White House working for President Obama is interested in the book. So, uh, you know, I think that that would be one one heck of a start um, in coming into 2012 with all the other, you know, great things as an artist that I'm hopefully will be out there for your consumption to uh, to see and, and judge uh, me as, a, as an actor, uh, a gang. So I, I'm very excited about that. Um, uh, I am kind of... Uh, you know, still not really clear on a lot of things on why the book hasn't really hit with our particular communities and the churches. I think part and part of a lot of it is probably because of just me. This is my first book, and I think um, historically uh, first-time writers never do as well as their second endeavors or third and fourth. So, I'm, you know, I'm taking that on the no, chance. No, 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 and being um, a don't, don't, discount, don't discount yourself like that because, Look at Invisible Man. That was the only book that was ever written by Ralph Ellison, and it's still in circulation over 40-some years ago. So you should not say that being a first-time writer, what it seems to be, we need to get your name out in the public forum, and there are a lot of black forums out here that you need to go ahead and start getting your information out here. These um, black uh, book clubs and um, bookstores or whatever, well, get your book. We hope, Sarah, that you'll help do that. And um, you know, the, uh, there's a there's a way for us to keep pressing uh, on getting Does this have a book more or, visibility. Or is there a website or something up, Janice? Because this this is really um taking me off when I'm sitting out hearing this what's going on with Mr. Washington, because it seems um Janice that. The, um, the gay slurs as well as anti-Semitic have taken over for black. You can go to jail. You can lose your job for saying a gay slur, so-called gay slur, so-called gay anti-Semitic slur. But if you say something or you do something on um, a black hate crime, nothing is going to happen to you. So the gay and well, lesbians and, and, and all these other people, they're more protected than, than being black. So this man hasn't said or done anything that that is detrimental to anyone. So I don't see why they're trying to take his livelihood away from him. I hear you. Uh, Sarah, we've got to go to another call, but I okay, absolutely thanks, Janet. hear you on this. On mute. And thank you for joining us tonight. 
301, you're on the air with Isaiah Washington. Thank you for joining us. Well, good evening, um, Janice, and good evening, Mr. Washington. Good evening. Hello, sir. Um, this is LDX from Inner Alliance. Then, how's it going this season? Good. We, we're we're backed up with calls here. Um, do you have a comment or a question you want to ask? Um, <laughs> yes, I'm like to, I would like to ask Mr. Washington a question. Um, what is your? Oh, oh, I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm a big fan of yours. Um, first of all, what is your? Uh, what which movies or your talk show that is your mostly a success? I, I, I think my one of my, my I have many favorite movies that you mean that I'm a part of. Yes, sir. Uh, I, I, I think one of my, my favorite uh, two films, uh, one called uh, Welcome to Collinwood. It's just a comedy I did with uh, George Clooney and uh, William H. Macy and uh, Andrew DeVoli and Patricia Clarkson and Louise Guzman. And I guess my my all-time favorite is a film called uh, Dancing in September that I did with Nicole Ari Parker that ended up on HBO. Oh, I absolutely love that movie. Mm. Oh, okay, well, thanks, guys. Dancing in se- September, that is just um, a heart. So heartwarming. Thank you, LDX, uh, for your call. We're going to go to 312, and then we're going to have to wrap it up here. 312, you're on the air. I respect you. Hey, Janice, this is House News Glover. Um, Mr. Washington, it's a pleasure speaking to you. Um, Actually, you just mentioned uh, the movie I want to talk about, Dancing in September. I just (laughs) saw that uh, literally uh, about three, four days ago. Watched it on cable. and uh, it, it was a really good movie. Um, first, it, it piqued my interest because, you know, Nicole Larry Park is in it. Um, you know, I, I have fun watching her shop for groceries. But um, actually, <laughs> watching the movie, it was the theme. The, the, it was really, really good. Um, uh, the characters were, were written perfectly. The storyline, the, the character you played, Mr. Washington, I, I felt that little tug um, between wanting to do the right thing um, and like the character said, being able to do it from the inside. But once you get inside, you have all the trappings that get you caught up and may distract you. And even if that's the original idea uh, behind moving things forward, you know, as the character kind of stated. Um, and then everybody just getting caught up in the stereotypes and uh, you wanting to do really, really well and do things for your people. But it, ultimately, media, TV shows are about the money. So without the money, without the ratings, you don't get the chance to do, to make the changes. Um, so I, 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 I encourage anybody to watch the movie. It's, uh, it's, it's really, really good. It's really, really well written. And Well, thank you for the recommendation. Absolutely. And, and I'm wondering if uh, what you're trying to do, um, take like um, is it Danny Glover or the Harry Belafonte, the people who are really, had another agenda outside of acting. I mean, are you are you going in that direction? Um, you exactly. Know, whether it's a, yeah, Danny Glover, Harry Belafonte, I'm definitely trying to walk in their shoes. Absolutely. That's absolutely correct. And you cool. definitely are walking in his shoes. Great. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate talking to you, and I'll talk to you soon, Jen. Thanks, Thank you. House, for your call. Okay, Para 13, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. Greetings, and thank you. And hello, Brother Isaiah. Hello. One of one of the things that um, you're speaking about uh, 
culture. And it appears that in, in today's time, we really need to focus even more on that due to the fact that living here in, the, in America, as, as African-Americans, you know, coming out of slavery, there was no halfway house to, to help us prepare for the real world. And so our developing of a culture was really mimicking Western civilization, which really wasn't conducive to their own mental well-being. So at this point, we see uh, what's going on that I would call the 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 um, the, this, the dysfunction, the, the paradigm of dysfunction in, here in America, and how do we shift our mental well-being in a direction that we will see ourselves from a holistic perspective, and again, primarily taking a look at culture, as far as what we how we see ourselves clothing, drinking, eating, all of this, these major factors, environment in which we live. We know we don't have the same cultural values that our grandparents, nor do our children have the same values that we have. But what is that common thread that you have, that you recognize at this point, that you've been doing your own self-searching, that you see that uh, all of us are should be going in a direction that will be conducive to our survival? Well, the thing that I'm doing is not I'm, I'm not reinventing the wheel. Uh, Pan-Africanism was started by uh, uh, Mr. Henry L. Williams, who was a Trinidadian, then W.E. Du Bois, uh, Dr. Edward Wilmot Blighting, actually, then uh, Mr. Henry L. Williams, and then W.E. Du Bois later, uh, who, who, who was given the title as the father of Pan-Africanism, but it really started with Edward Wilmot Blighton. Uh, this has been going on since 1787, what I've been able to do. I have been able to make history by becoming the first African-American to receive a dual citizenship, a full citizenship, uh, with uh, the Republic of Sierra Leone on April 26, 2010. That's one heck of a start is by saying that now this African, West African president is reaching out to us, the North American Africans, and saying that we'll welcome you home to relearn the language, to relearn the uh, the culture. All we want you to do is to come back and invest in the commodities, the emerging markets, which is 24 of them on the continent, so you can have your own. Uh, it, you know, I have access to 6,000 hectares, or over you know 5,000 uh, 5, acres of land. That's a heck of a lot more than 40 acres in a mule that we never receive. Okay, so what he's saying to me is he is of the same thought of Kwame Nkrumah. We started off well, but somehow our own people betrayed him and got him out of there uh, with a little help, I think, from other provocateurs and detractors. The same thing with Haile Selassie. He was forced out of his his, uh, regency in 1974 because the people was taught not to believe in him anymore. Uh, Patrice Lumumba, uh, Mobutu, was put at odds with him for other uh, infiltrators. So, Everything that is happening has been happening historically. Stokely Carmichael, Fred Hampton, Martin Luther King, Adam Clayton Powell Jr., Horace Mann Bond, Ralph Bunch, probably the only one that was able to succeed in his career quietly, like Thurgood Marshall, because they stayed behind the scenes. But when you step outside of that and start talking about culture, all of a sudden you see the eye rollings and the sucking of the teeth like it's like we're complaining about slavery being a problem when we wasn't we weren't we weren't minding our own business on that continent. We weren't brought over here uh, in in good favor. We were forced in shackles and train in chains. And for some reason, in this post-slavery syndrome, we're taught to believe that if we make a comment about our Holocaust or we say anything about it, we're we're we're, we're not being uh, 
sensible or we're not being, we're complaining or we can't let bygones be bygones. And it's, it's just the most absurd thing on the face of the planet. You cannot move forward without knowing your history. We're the only people on this continent that does not have a mainland to connect itself to. And there's a reason for that. So it's, it's, it's almost like uh, suicidal, globally speaking for us not to recognize the science called DNA and reconnect ourselves. I'm not saying going back to Africa. It's not a going back to Africa movement. You have an IT technology, you have a computer. It's having Africa's back in deed, in spirit, in motion, and in conversation, in a positive, and out of love, once and for all. The people over there are just as guilty and feel just as bad by not being connected to us as for those of us who don't have the trust and suspicion of people because they speak seven languages and we can barely speak one. We have to remove this, these ignorance, uh, this ignorance from all of ourselves and move in love in that direction because if we're going to continue to call her Mother Africa, then we have to treat her like the first mother that she is and get past all these pettiness. That is one disease that I think is really, really impeding all of us, is that, that petty gene. It affects us at all levels, from the corner, the liquor store, in the black church, in the fraternities, so wrong, in our own homes. Pettiness is a disease that's stopping us. Once we can get past our pettiness, then we can actually have our freedom that so many people have died and, and, and been lynched for uh, in the 21st century. We've got a king in America in, in the White House. Whether we, we like it or not, he is probably the most curious African American on the, on the face of the planet at this point, and he is the leader of the free world. So we need to step up. May I ask another question? Go right ahead. Sure. We have we have another yes. caller, okay. and Mr. Washington does have to, to leave, but make it very quick, please. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, brother, as you see, um, the, the, the country is now making a shift from capitalism to fascism. You know, corporations are now pretty much in control and, and dictating American way of life as well as the global. How do you see that um, having an effect on uh, African Americans here as far as since, you know, the unemployment is getting higher, they're creating all type of situations to put us in jail, they're privatizing the, the prisons in order to create a slavery type situations for the corporations to make a profit. So it, um, I see that... Uh, the the move the possible move and the opportunity to move to Africa is a very uh, very good uh, uh, way of going. There are a number of organizations th- you know throughout the diaspora here that are working towards that goal. But well, that happens that happens every fifty years, sir. Unfortunately, you know we, it only happens because of 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 the of lynching. When when Martin Luther King was forced by Coronado King to go and join forces with Kwame Nkrumah because he was becoming the first our prime minister of Ghana, that first trip in 1955, he didn't want to go. He didn't understand that the civil rights had anything to do with the freedom of the people in Africa. It wasn't until Coretta Scott King threatened to leave him and the civil rights movement to get him to understand that Africa is the future. Okay, those who prepare for the future are the ones that will succeed, and Africa is the future. Malcolm X said it when he got back from his hodge. So Africa is the future. It's the alpha and the omega. So, again, this what we're talking about has been going on since 1787. Black people, Afro-Americans, African-Americans, people of African descent have decided to come together when the pressure has become so overwhelming and overbearing from bigotry and racism or any form of oppression, then they want to run back to Africa. But they don't have a plan. 
And the plan that I'm trying to, to prophetize is in the book that I've written, A Man from Another Land. You cannot run from oppression to go run and colonize the people who've already been colonized without understanding the language, the culture, and why you're going there. If you're going there as a means to an end and, you're, and, and, and your end is not an authentic one, then you're going to run into the same problems that people ran into when they went to Liberia and Monrovia. They were not accepted. They were rejected. Sure. The reason Martin Luther King was rejected by the African people when he left Ghana is because they don't speak the same language, and they never wanted to. The thing that, we, the thing that fundamentally did not have us connected as a people, we've never had. The only thing that connected Africans in the 50s and the 60s and 70s was anger, rage, and oppression. Mm-hmm. And what I'm trying to say is through love and DNA, that is the fundamental thing that will connect us, and we start from there. We start from within and work our way out. Once and for all, through science, we finally have a connection, a scientific and authentic one, is that we know our place of origins from a people. And that's the one thing that they can never break. And like I said, blood is thicker than water. And we've never had that. The only thing that Africans and, and the Negroes had was the fact that they were being oppressed by, by, by Europeans. That's the only thing we have in common. But now there's a thing called a corporation which is colorless. It doesn't care about any sexual orientation, race, gender, color, creed, or religion. It only thinks about itself, and even it's not a real person. So now we have no other choice but to go back to our place of origin and help rebuild it economically so we can have a mainland to attach ourselves to as the mainland that we've created here in America that all of us have built and our ancestors who are the, 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 the descendants of slaves that built it for free. We have no choice. We have no choice now. There is no other choice. We either die here uh, as, as, as the descendants of slave, slaves and slaveholders, okay, or we become shareholders on our place of origin, which is the second largest continent in the world. Asia is there. The Dutch is there. The Germans are there. Everybody's on that continent doing business but us. I just want to say I'm very proud of you, brother. Aren't we proud of him? Knowledgeable, insightful, passionate. Um, he's an extraordinary brother. Thank you, OK Power, for your call. And we're going to go to 818 very quickly, please. You're with Isaiah Washington. Hi, BJ. Hello, my brother Isaiah. This is Uje. Oh, Uje, good evening, and thank you for joining us tonight. Good evening. I'm really happy to be here. Real quick question. I'm sorry if uh, this has already been answered. Uh, Brother Isaiah, you hold dual citizenship with Sierra Leone. What business or what businesses have you helped to bring to Sierra Leone, and how easy is it? It's extremely difficult. It's extremely difficult, uh, but I'm getting close as God wants me to get there. I'm not going to get there to the promised land until I'm ready. Uh, and until I've been made whole, until I'm purified to accept that blessing. And I'm going through that process right now. Uh, I have an unbelievably uh, supportive wife who's helping me with that process. And I'm getting really, really close. I have some serious businessmen that are extraordinarily wealthy, that have heard my passion, that feel my fire, are not interested in investing in me because of my pain, but investing in me because they want to be a part of the commodities and a new market, a new market in the country that was probably the most volatile, the most horrific 11-year war during the Blood Diamond War, but now on the trajectory that's going to exceed Lesotho, Mozambique, Rwanda, and South Africa combined by 2016. So whoever is investing in that nation, which is probably where you're from, Mindy Timney, 
uh, most of the 90% of the North American African Americans or Africans in North America are from Mindy Chimney peoples. So this is going to be the new place, the new Athens of Africa that we can all go and play and visit and have recreation and, and great colleges and universities to study different forms of malaria and different forms of HIV that are popping up that is going to destroy our community. That's the vision I see for this place. And it's, it's no bigger than the state of South Carolina. So it's really not that hard to me. Uh, I've carried the water for five years, and I'm just asking for people to read the book and get a better understanding of why I'm passionate about it so you can, you know, be understanding and move in a, in a, in a cognizant way, in a, in a, in a critically uh, uh, analytical way as opposed to just emotion. And that is the thing that's going to kill us off is that we just get fired up like Soweto and start marching without a plan. It just it, it does not do us any good to continue to be angry about a plan that people committed themselves to for 400 years, but you're missing the fact that the pyramids are still standing. Whether we built them for free or not, we built them. Okay? Those cobblestone in South Carolina and those streets on the, where we were held as slaves, we built that. Every landmark in the American South, we built that. So take pride in that and not look at it as something that we were forced to do. Do you understand that those people that had two decisions, only one decision to make, and that was simply to live. They had two choices, either do what they were told or die. That was the urgency that they had, but yet they meticulously built these master's mansions block by block, brick by brick, wood pine by wood pine, and they built them beautifully, and they sang a song of unity and love. Hopefully the one day that Isaiah Washington and a Janice and the Common Ground will receive that energy and know that we built this for you, to know that even though we weren't paid for it, this is yours to watch forever. Starting with the 72 pyramids, so you only talk about three, but there's 72 of them on that continent, and every single mansion on every single former plantation throughout the South were built by us. Even the rotunda in the White House was built by us. Until we embrace that truth and leave the anger and the dissension and the suspicion and the pettiness alone and look at the beauty of what we've done for free, then we can go about the business of investing in ourselves on another continent that is desperately awaiting our vision and our innovativeness to come and do it. Wow. Thank you for your call. And uh, you're, you're absolutely right that we have to have a clear vision, uh, Isaiah Washington. And your book, A Man from Another Land, brings us the kind of vision that we need to embrace. You know, uh, I am um, retirement age now. <laughs> and I'm certainly interested in looking at a dual citizenship and a dual um, uh, living arrangement um, in Ghana, uh, either well, the, Ghana the, the door, or the door, Rwanda. The door, the door is open, Janice, but unfortunately I I have to run. Uh, I was supposed okay. to be in the gate for it, 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 well, it, uh at eight o'clock, but I, I'm so sorry, but I, I my wife has been patient. I know, I know. Uh, but I, I have to go, my dear. But we have been honored by your your presence and your, by your message and by your book, and by your life's journey. And thank you so much for being such a good brother. No, I say, I say, thank you, thank you, thank you, and all your listeners. Okay, that was uh, our discussion, a very good discussion with Isaiah Washington. The book is A Man from Another Land, How Finding My Roots Changed My Life.
and um, I highly recommend it. I recommend it for if you have children, especially teenagers, in your life. Um, this is a book that they should read. You know, we uh, Isaiah was talking about, and one of our callers was talking about um, the book should go into HBCUs. This book should go into high schools and junior high schools. You're listening to Our Common Ground. Our number is 347-838-9852. We certainly like to hear for your impressions of uh, our discussion with Isaiah Washington and what he said. This brother can teach. He was really teaching. When we come back from this break, um, we will take your calls. Uh, our phone lines are open. And our number is 347-838-9852. This is Our Common Ground, broadcasting Bold, Brave, and Black. You're listening to Our Common Ground, bold and black broadcasting at Blog Talk Radio. I'm Janice Graham, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Thank you for being with us tonight. One day, hey, there's a great big elephant down the way. Going around talking, I'm sorry to say about your mama in a scandalous way. Yeah, he's talking about your mama and your grandma too. And he don't show so much respect to you. Now, you weren't Chad, and I sure am glad, because what he said about your mama made me mad. Sing it by monkey, stay up in your tree. You are always lying, and sing it fine, but you better not monkey with me. We looked, at, looked into the eyes of evil, pure evil, and said to ourselves, what is this country coming to? What have these bigoted races, and I will repeat it, bigoted races. Anybody wants to challenge me on that? Have at Have at Reload some Alpha, the Mo Alpha Show, on TruthWorks Network. My life was going downhill fast. Everybody was on my case. Now, I kept hoping that life would change real soon. I knew drinking too much messed up my life. A friend suggested I check out AA. It worked. I found myself in an AA group. Finally, I've got my act together. Alcoholics Anonymous. It works. Look us up. Check your phone book, newspaper, or AA.org. It's a cold and crazy world that's raging outside. But baby, me and all my girls are bringing on the fire. Show a little leg, gotta send me your chest. It's a life of the sound of the need. Our common ground speaking truth to power. I'm Janet Grant. Saturdays, 10 p.m. 
Brown. And thank you for being with us tonight. Uh, we're going to head right into our chat room, and thank you all uh, for your great conversation. I, I think that this brother has it all right. Um, if, if you have not read the book, there is a link. Uh, if you go to uh, Our Common Ground Community Center, which is located, and I'm posting in the chat room, at www. Our common ground hyphen talk dot ning dot com. You can find you will find a link uh, to an excerpt of the book um, as we talk about the life and journey of um, our guest tonight, Isaiah Washington. I mean, here is a brother who. Is, is 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 so knowledgeable about our history and how one event and one set of pieces of our history connect with another event. And it's just really, you know, I know this is the old lady uh, word, delightful to find a brother whose discovery and I, of identity has become a, uh, a benchmark in his life and determining what he will do. You also can go to uh, the website of the Gondo Bay Manga Foundation. Uh, this is a foundation which was inspired by our guest, Isaiah Washington, um, after his discovery of his direct genetic link to the Mende people of Sierra Leone. And it advocates cooperative planning to achieve uh, improvements in the lives of people of Sierra Leone. And, um, you know, one of the things that really touched me in, in reading uh, his book is that he really describes that in a world too often filled with pain and suffering, that we can move people just in our lives. I mean, I'm 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 not understanding. We're talking about, and Sarah in her call um, uh, touched on it, uh, how we can get this kind of story and information out to people. But one of the things we need to talk about it uh, immediately. Uh, I was thinking, wow, I would like to have my granddaughter, my grandson, go spend a summer uh, working for the Gondo Bay Manga Foundation. Here's an opportunity to really get her in tune with what moves her life, and what moves her life is identity. I mean, you are nothing without identity. We've got a few more minutes, and if you'd like to call in, get your impressions. Um, Herman Cain uh, dropped out of the, he said he suspended. This man, you see what I'm talking about in terms of identity? He missed the whole, the whole part uh, about his ancestral connection and his culture. Uh, a man who would continually 
offend the people from which he came, his black mother, his black father, his black wife. This man has is an empty suit with no moral or spiritual character to speak of. So uh, in case you weren't in tune with the news today, uh, he did, uh, he called it a suspension, and the speech that he gave was like a bad, you know, you ever go to Sunday church and the preacher is bad, he doesn't have any real good preaching skills, and and the sermon is empty. A real bad combination going on. So, um, and, and and the thing is that we have been distracted by that. You know, I'm I'm suggesting you know that our common ground is a big supporter of the Black Agenda Report. We're a big supporter of the Black Commentator. On our website at common ourcommonground.com, you can find a listing of the best Black political, cultural, entertainment blogs on the internet. We need to seep ourselves in finding ourselves. We need to occupy our black minds. You know, hashtag occupy black minds. We need to use social media in a way to build relationships. One of the reasons that I am so committed to Black Talk Radio is that we need to come together to analyze through our black mind what we know about who we are and what this journey has been about. We need to analyze the events before us and not become distracted but get focused and strategic about the path that we are taking the journey that we must plan, the strategic elements of those, and at the core of it, you know, even wealthy people, very wealthy people, are thinking about the children in their families and how they can make them more wealthy, even children who haven't been born in their families. And we need to begin to think of that. Thank you so much, um, Sarah and Okrapara and Yuji and Alpha for your calls tonight and LDX. And don't forget to check out LDX at Enter the Lion's Den and Alpha, the Alpha Show, on our TruthWorks Network. Next week, E. Patrick Johnson. 10 p.m., Sweet Tea, Black Men, Black Gay Men of the South. He illuminates the fabric of Black Gay Men's history, and he will be joining us. That's E. Patrick Johnson, and we're excited to have him. And we thank Isaiah Washington so much for being with us tonight and for you. Thank you so very much. You've been tuned to Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. And don't forget, here, Our Common Ground, each Saturday, 10 p.m., speaking truth to power and ourselves, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Have a great weekend.
maybe a young turk, maybe. 